Welcome to the Strength Talking Shop podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith. We talk all things strength, coaching, fitness, nutrition, powerlifting, strongman. If it involves a barbell, we're going to talk about it. We are presented by Optimum Nutrition Athletics. We all know that protein is the key to muscle recovery, and Gold Standard's best-selling 100% whey protein provides 24 grams of protein that mixes easily using just a glass and spoon. Gold Standard 100% whey is made in their state-of-the-art facility. It's banned substance tested by Informed Choice. And with Optimum Nutrition Athletics program, you can get different items such as their Pro Gainer, which is their Mass Gainer, protein snacks such as their crisp bars, wafers, cake bites, and almonds. And after dominating the sports and nutrition industry for over 30 years, newly created Optimum Nutrition Athletics brings that same trust and quality that knows how to put convenient options for protein in the hands of athletes who desire to become bigger, stronger, and better at their sport. If this is something that you're interested in and in getting into your facility, reach out to Dave Harvey of Optimum Nutrition Athletics. Down in the show notes, he's got his email. Dave and the team at Optimum Nutrition Athletics are absolutely amazing. They'll get everything that you need. I use their products every single day. I use the Gold Standard 100% Way for my post-workouts. If I need something quick for protein on the go throughout the day. And also if I need to grab a snack, I'll just grab one of the almonds, uh, some of the cake bites, and then also the crisps. Absolutely love the crisps and the almonds. So make sure you reach out to Dave Harvey of Optimum Nutrition Athletics, and thank you for being our sponsor. Our guest this week is Alyssa Parton of Lady Beef, Inc. She has also just started her Ph.D. program at the University of North Alabama. So congratulations to her. Very excited uh, to see how that goes with her working with the students, uh, what she learns with her Ph.D. program. In this episode, there's a lot packed into it, honestly. We talk about her powerlifting career, um, her lifting uh, after she just became a mom here, too, as well. What she sees with her clients, what she sees with other people at, at meets, and just kind of her experiences as well. Alyssa is an absolutely amazing coach. Uh, I really suggest you go follow her on all social media, whether that's Twitter, Instagram. Reach out to her. She's really knowledgeable, somebody I've learned a ton from, and somebody I will always continue to learn from. So I'm very thankful to have Alyssa on this week and being our guest. Make sure you hit that uh, subscribe button if you haven't on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you give us that five-star reviews, too, as well on Apple. Or if you listen to it on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever, Google, just share it with somebody. It always helps us out. I really appreciate everybody that helps support the podcast, all of the past guests, all of the future guests, and, of course, Alyssa this week for being our guest. So make sure you reach out to our guest this week, Alyssa. Uh, follow us on all social media. And everybody, stay strong. What's up? Very excited to have an awesome person on the podcast this week. It's Alyssa Parton of Lady Beef Inc. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm awesome. We uh, talked obviously before the podcast and uh, I was just talking about how much I love her content, um, all the information she puts out. So if you're not following her already, you're crazy. So make sure you follow her on Instagram and Twitter, but very excited to have you on here. Alyssa, I know that you uh, you got a little boy uh, to take care of. So taking the time out of it's awesome. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. As I, I kind of talk with every guest, you know, we all have a story on how we got started in the madness. It's always <laughs> interesting to kind of hear like, what got you into all of this? So what got you started in the madness of that is, you know, training? You know, it's kind of crazy. Like I never really saw myself as this sort of coach, but you know, my first, uh, job ever was a coach. I, um, grew up baton twirling and, um, at 15 years old, I started giving, you know, private baton twirling lessons. So I went from a really skinny bar that I tossed in the air and did tricks under to a heavy bar on my back. But <laughs> <laughs> when I went to college, you know, my, my one and only goal in life was to go to the university of Alabama. Didn't really know what I was going to do once I got there, but I just grew up a really big fan. So that was it. I just knew I wanted to go to Alabama. So on top of that, and literally only knowing baton twirling all my life, I decided to go into business because I wanted to own a baton twirling studio. That's all I knew. <laughs> and so my wheels started turning while I was in undergrad, I guess like that first um, year. And I was like, you know, I kind of want to be able to work with both kids with baton twirling and adults. What can I do with the adults in my baton twirling studio? Right. And I was like, I could have a gym. I could train them. So 
I went to my advisor's office and at, you know, chatting with her, ended up learning about exercise science and with Alabama's program, you can specialize in different areas, one of them being business. And so to not, you know, having have wasted a semester, I decided to do that so that I could keep those credits and then work towards um, my other specializations, which I believe were fitness and health promotion. And I ended up minoring in nutrition because I ended up really enjoying that and wanted to take more classes in it. Um, so then from there, I ended up working at a gym in Tuscaloosa that was very highly bodybuilding, you know, and that was kind wow. of the era when bodybuilding was just like blowing up and Instagram became a brand new thing. Yep. So I got into bodybuilding um, and competed for a couple years and decided to put that to rest. It, it did a number on me mentally. <laughs> <laughs> and I just knew it wasn't for me. I had yep. kind of a unhealthy relationship with food at the time that I had to work through. Um, and so through that process and trying to shift my mindset from training for physique purposes, mm -hmm. I transferred into powerlifting to kind of get my mind more on the performance aspect of it. So started playing around with powerlifting and decided from there, you know, I, I loved it. And I, and that's when also, you know, I had started getting more into studying. I, you know, was trying to improve my knowledge and all of that of powerlifting and strength and conditioning. So from there, I was like, I want to go back to school and <laughs> went um, and started my master's and got my master's in human performance and strength and conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, about a month into my master's program, I was already like, there's no way I want to end after this. Um, I was in the accelerated program. So I was going to finish my master's, my dual master's in just over a year. And I was like, wow. I'm not, I don't want to be done in a year. And so at that point I chatted with my mentor and he knew about, um, university of North Alabama mm -hmm. starting their doctorate program this year. So I jumped all over that. I scheduled a um, campus tour with them, went up there. I emailed them until so like they didn't even have their application out yet. Like it wasn't even known. Like everyone who was at UNA knew and like through the grapevine people knew about yep. this program coming out. But like the application process wasn't even there yet. But it was going to be really competitive. Like I, I think they told me that they were only going to have like 10 doctorate students and like a majority of them were going to be coming out of UNA's master's program. So I knew that, you know, I had to work really hard to make sure they did not forget about me. <laughs> right. And so I was like sending them an email every month, making sure they didn't forget about me. I sent them Christmas cards and <laughs> like, it was ridiculous, but it worked. And uh, they ended up accepting me into their program and as a graduate assistant. And um, so super excited to work with them. Their, their professors are beyond amazing and it's just going to be a really fun next three years. So that's what got me here um, through that process of, you know, becoming a powerlifting coach. Um, I started obviously building my clientele with them and increasing my experience working with different levels of powerlifters. Um, and at this point, you know, I've had several um, elite powerlifters compete and win different um, huge competitions like nationals and the Arnold and all kinds of fun stuff. So it's just been it's been the best. I, I cannot really express how much I love <laughs> coaching powerlifting and I love my athletes. They are not just my clients. They are my best friends. They are my family and I would do literally anything for them. Yep. But yeah, it's just been the absolute best. You can absolutely hear the passion that you have for coaching throughout your voice. But the one thing that I, I noticed in your story is like, you were not afraid to, when there was an opportunity to just go for it, go all in, like, and it sounds like that's what's kind of happened here with, with your clientele too, as well. I mean, like for them to be champions and to go on to be elite powerlifters, like they got to have somebody that is all in working with them. What has kind of been the biggest success as far as you growing within your clientele and learning from them and everything like that? 
my biggest success, you know, I just, I feel like I consistently learn from them, you know, not yeah. every, you know, you, whenever you're learning material, like how to do a meat prep, how to do a taper and deloads and stuff, you know, you have this guideline that you're given, but then you have to take into account the person and learn from them specifically and the yeah. biofeedback you receive from them. And so I would say that like my biggest success is just being open to not being so strictly in the textbook. Like, you know, I, I am yeah. huge on academics and I love research and studying material that's out there, but having an open mind, like, and figuring out what's going to work best for my athlete, even if it might not be what's set in stone and this, you know, in the research and the textbooks and stuff, like just being able to figure out them and, um, follow those cues. And I think that that's, it, I guess it's the art of coaching, you know, like you have to be able to mix the two to put it together. And I think that's just been the biggest success for my clients too, because they're not just some study participant they're not just some like I don't know they're a person and they adapt their own way and they have their own life stressors that you have to put into consideration exactly and I think that's what's different about my coaching process too you know we have mesocycles right where you, you progressive overload for a handful of weeks I don't just um ride out that full mesocycle send it mm -hmm. to them and I'm like all right follow this I'll touch base with you in four weeks like we touch base every single week because even if they're progressive overloading that same micro cycle things change like they are going through different situations throughout their days and their weeks and their life and if I need to make an adjustment based on that I can like I'm not going to just be like oh sorry I you're, you don't get an update for another three weeks. Like it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love that you said that because it makes me, I always think about this, like, let's say your house flooded and I didn't know about it. And you, I'm looking at you, like, let's say after the fourth week, you're like, what happened this week? And they're right. like, my house flooded. Well, why didn't you tell me? Well, you never asked me like, yeah, you got to have that constant communication. If we're what, right. both wanting to get to the same goal. Right. And like I said earlier, you know, I don't babysit, I don't chase, but like in my uh, check-in forms, I give so much room for them to just tell me what's going on. You know, it's like, I want to hear, you know, the obvious things like, how was your sleep? How did you feel? How recovered do you feel? Were you, did you have any pain or um, anything in your lifts that I need to be aware of? But also it's like, how do you feel? Like, did anything happen this week that you just want to get off your chest? What's a good thing that happened this week? I always want to hear something positive just to kind of bring them back to, you know, even though your training might've been a shit show, you know what, <laughs> this, this was something good that happened this week. <laughs> exactly. I love, I love that you talk about the positivity side of it because I mean, they are human beings. We want to hear positive things. And if like, you're a jerk all the time saying like, well, you could have done this better in the cycle and this and that, like, they're probably not going to want to stick along around very long because they're not going to, you know, some people are good at taking that kind of criticism, but for the most part, they want to have a, a coach that is happy for them and, and truly wants to see them succeed in the yeah. long run. Yeah. It's just so unhuman to not get that. Not every week is going to go perfectly, yeah. especially in the world we're living in now. Like it's yeah. just so up and down constantly. I mean, I, I was literally just talking to my client who, you know, they're moving and the whole Delta variants getting worse where they are. And she doesn't know if she's going to be able to hit the gym as consistently that I have an athlete in Louisiana and I swear to God, the number of freaking storms they have down there. Like oh, we know yeah. it's bad, but unless you like work one-on-one -on -one with people that are down there, I have like four athletes in Louisiana and it's just kind of funny but also hor horrible <laughs> but like every time there's a storm in there they're like my gym's closed <laughs> and so you have to figure out ways around it it's just like super annoying for them because they're like I want to be consistent so bad but these freaking hurricanes won't let off <laughs> right well and, the, and I use a coach that's so many variables but in the long run that's going to make you better as a coach it's going to make them better because you're going to find ways around it I'm sure during the quarantine when you were working with some of those athletes that didn't have a gym, like you had to be really creative with what you were doing. For real. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Working with them on just ways to, to not so much maybe progress their strength, but more so maintain their strength and power, which is definitely possible, at least in the short term. But it was really cool, actually, how many athletes came back from that stronger. I remember one of my athletes was having so much of a confidence issue hitting depth in her squat. And I don't know what the heck we did during quarantine with those, you know, just like plyometric and speed training workouts, but she came back she hasn't had a single depth issue since. And I still have no idea how that happened, but I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Like she literally came back perfectly confident in, you know, anything below depth. So it was just really funny, but I love to hear stuff like that. Like for myself, I only had like some bands and I had a old tire sled and I'm like, well, I guess this is what I'll have for the next few months. So you just deal with, with what you have best. So I can't imagine having to handle so many people like that, but Uh, you know, let's, let's say it's a, you know, normal, you know, what do you see as far as clients or just people in general, what are some of the biggest mistakes you kind of see within the big three, whether that's not, you know, they're overloading too much, too much max effort work, not enough dynamic work. You know, what is technical stuff? What are you seeing? You know, I feel like really the biggest mistake I see is, um, I guess more inexperienced, but you know, athletes trying to copy more elite lifters technique or, um, <laughs> right. I agree like, or, 100%. or just simply trying to shorten the range of motion. So picking these stances and positions that they're not necessarily stronger in, but think that they're going to be stronger in it because they don't have to move the bar as far. Yeah. Um, but then what does that cause that ends up because, you know, it's not really a advantageous position for them. You know, they start to have aches and pains. A lot of times I will see people squatting way too wide and have, um, hip flexor issues or benching too wide and having shoulder issues. And so I feel like, you know, we see certain elite athletes who are strong enough to put themselves in these positions. Um, or, you know, <laughs> another thing, cause I work with raw power lifters uh-huh. and I will see a lot of raw power lifters trying to copy, equipped lifter positions Mm. and that is not gonna work (laughs) two different things so yeah i would say that that would probably be uh some of the most common things that i see with my athletes when i first start working with them so it's like i get them and there are this is the videos that they send me of their lifts and so one of the first things we start to do is try to figure out what stances work for them that aren't necessarily just mimicking what they've seen. Cause you know, I mean, especially with the social media world, we're all following these big time lifters, you know, the really strong ones, the ones that, you know, we look up to, but just because they do something does not mean it will work for you too. (laughs) I always think of the question of like, what did they do in year one versus what they're doing now? Like, that's what I want. That's what I want to learn. Like, it's great that they maybe squat out wide like that, but how did they first start out? you know? Yeah. And I'm totally guilty of it too. Like if I, too. Look at, if I scroll down to the end of my Instagram, like it is some cringy videos <laughs> <laughs> and I was doing the same thing. Like I, I started out a sumo deadlifter. I'm still a sumo deadlifter, but man, that form was atrocious. We all understand. Exactly. I remember my, watching the first West Side videos I ever watched. Like, well, I guess yeah. everybody has a squat out wide. And it's like, no. Right. Um, wide and, and sit back into the squat. <laughs> where, you know, I'm a raw lifter too. And it's like, ah, that's not going to work. Like that literally did not work. I, I had so much pain doing that. I'm like, this should not yeah. like, and then too, like, how do you kind of handle that with, with clients then in the beginning, as far as like, all right, we're, cause everybody wants to like put 50 pounds in their total with every cycle. Right. It seems like, Ugh, I know that's really hard. Like I I always feel kind of bad when a client's like, how much do you think my total will go up for this next competition? I'm like, dude, if any coach tells you that they know that answer, they are lying to you. I cannot (laughs) tell you how much we're going to put on. We are going to do our best to put on as much as possible, but anything can happen between now and then anything could happen on the platform. Like I cannot tell you that, 
Oh man. But you know, the first thing that I do, I always try and teach on their level. So I have to step out of being like, you know, I have all these degrees and certifications. I've studied this for many, many years. I cannot talk to them like I would talk to somebody like you or like just someone on our level. I have to teach them in a way that they'll understand. And I also try not to teach them too much too quickly. So, you know, if they are, they are squatting really wide, I'll be like, Hey, you know, I know you have some hip issues. Let's try and just bring your feet in a few inches. Like I might not overload their brain with the reasons why. Um, but just kind of like pretty much if you make the person feel better under the bar, they're going to be like, you're a genius. I listen to whatever you tell me, you know? Um, (laughs) I love that. It doesn't have to be too much. Like they already know we know our stuff. If they're working with you, they trust you. So they already trust that I know my shit. I don't, if, unless they are like we were talking about earlier, another coach that wants to know all the reasons why this might be working better for them, then I'll go into that. But if I'm just trying to teach them on their level, make them feel better, make them feel confident under the bar and increase their strength and develop their performance, then I'm just going to teach them what they need to know, um, to make that happen. So yeah, just giving them enough information to go into their next sessions to make them feel better do better um and then progress from there but yeah you just got to teach their own I love that because you you set a base for them like this is where the base is and then you prepare them for the next level kind of thing so when you progress forward from there what are some of the you know keys to having that successful meet for for a lot of your clients you know like a lot of people say your opener should be this, this, or that. What do you kind of look for the key indicators as far as getting that meat right where we want it to be? So we had to kind of figure out, well, first of all, you know, the two things that I say are most important going to the meat is practice and confidence. Like if you don't practice what you're going to do in competition, especially if you're a newer lifter, like more experienced lifters, you might be able to go more of the conjugate route, do more variations, even through meat prep. I'm not a huge fan of that. I love conjugate, but I am even as you know, a seasoned lifter, I prefer having plenty of practice in my specific lifts, especially, you know, the closer I get. So, you know, practice and, and having that, I think breeds confidence too. Um, but when you're going into a meet, you, you always want to do a meet and get your feet wet and kind of just get a feel for how you handle that kind of stress and excitement and just the mix of emotions that come with competing. Um, but I think more for like just universally that lifters do really well with visualization techniques, like visualizing, Mm -hmm. accomplishing their lifts. Like I always tell them, I don't care if it's a warm up lift or like some kind of lower intensity movement going in to your meat, you know, as we taper or just during prep, I want you to pretend that that's your third attempt. I want you to execute that Mm -hmm. thing like with the power, with the focus of it being your third attempt and just having that consistent practice, even if, you know, it's obviously not that load yet. Right. I think that does so much for them in both, you know, the execution side of things as well as the confidence side. Um, and then obviously I think that if you're practicing commands, especially if you're a newer lifter, that will help you yep. going in because, <laughs> If you don't get your commands, then you're shit out of luck. Um, but yeah, so I think just really anything that can build both your practice with those specific lifts and your confidence under the bar. And in that situation for some athletes, you know, they can get into the meet and just put their headphones on, chill in the background, do their warmups, get that opener in and their nerves are fine. Others need more, you know, calming techniques and ways to just keep their head down and not focus on what's going on around them. And so you just have to figure out your athlete and then guide them to that. So for instance, like if I've worked with an athlete for a couple of meets and I know exactly like what they need on meet day, Mm -hmm. 
either I'm there to help them with that, you know, I'll put them in a corner, I'll give them like things to do, I will, you know, <laughs> make sure I'm loading the bar for them. I do not let my athletes load the bar for their warmups, just out of experience that wore me out for one meet. And I like literally sucked, but because <laughs> I was, I was loading the bar for warming up myself as well as other people, because I'm such a helper and there's all these like new lifters around me. And I'm like, yeah, let me help you. And then I was like burned out by the time I actually had to do my attempts. But anyways, you know, I'll, I, I just want to make sure that they don't have anything to worry about other than taking care of themselves and executing their lifts. So they're sitting in the corner, they're doing their warmups, they're visualizing their execution. Um, so either I'm there to do that, or I will find a handler for them and make sure the handler knows exactly what to do. So just make sure that they feel collected. And um, I think that can make such a huge difference. Absolutely. Confidence going into a meet. I mean, that'll, that'll take you light years ahead of everybody else. I was overhearing at my last meet last month of an athlete. And this is something that I, I, w I just want to get your opinion on and see if you've seen this too, as well, where it's as if like lifters want to do the meet the week before the meet, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, I was talking to this kid and it was his first meet and it sounded like he had maxed out the week before. And I'm like, and our meet went so fast, started at 9 a.m. And, and awards were out by noon. So we're talking like three hours. It's great. It was madness. And he was just worn out. And I'm like, well, yeah. maybe if you had, you know, not maxed out the week before, you maybe have felt a little bit better, like you tapered into it and everything like that. Yeah. How important is that you think? I mean, you talked about the confidence side, but just like having a good proper taper into the meet. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so important. Like, I feel like honestly, the taper can make or break you. And that's another learning experience for the coach. And apparently the athletes too. Yeah. If they're doing that. yeah. It really frustrates me whenever my athletes, more newer ones who aren't used to me yet, like just go off program and we'll max out. I'm like, dude, I literally am putting into account, like how far out you are from your meet. Like, let's just Athlete. not do this anyway. But you know, it, it's so important because your taper you, you have to, you have to figure out how you respond best to a taper, like how quickly you're going to pull back on your lifts. Yeah. Even, you know, some people do better pulling back on certain lifts before others. You look at Jim Thompson and she does her, you know, open her bench, like the day before her meet, like, obviously that's, we go back to, you know, textbooks, that's not textbook, but that is what she has learned over exactly. her many years of competing that works for her. So you just have to play around with things as a coach, but in a very intelligent and kind of a careful way, like maybe trying something really small each meet before, while you're like collecting all this data to put it all piece it all together. But yeah, like if you, uh, I just, it depends on the person because like, I, like you never want to max out before me. I've seen people do, um, warm up with higher than their opener and then go out and do their opener. And they're like fatigued by it. I'm like, what, why, what, what in your brain? How did that make sense? I don't mm -hmm. understand, but yeah. So, I mean, your taper is probably one of the most important parts. I mean, like if you're keeping those intensities high, but you're pulling back, um, on certain days or, with your accessories to reduce that accumulated fatigue. Like you just want to play it right and um, make sure that you're pulling back enough by the time you actually compete without overdoing it, because then you might feel a little bit detrained under the bar. Um, I personally just like with the majority of my athletes, obviously we're piecing together just different things that work best for each one over time. But I would say like the general tapering practice I've had with them um, about two and a half to three weeks out, we will keep intensities high. They might even trickle up, like say if we have their projected opener and it moves really fast the next week, I might go up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so increase that intensity some, but all the while those two and a half to three weeks, I'm pulling back on accessories because although I want to keep their fitness capacity up for as long as I can, we do need to obviously reduce that accumulated fatigue that they've built up throughout the prepping process. 
Um, so we'll do that. And then about three days out from a meet is their final lifting day. And then they have those three days to rest and recuperate, do their visualization yeah. and calming techniques if they need to. Um, and yeah, and then compete. And hopefully by then, you know, their super compensation effects have kicked in and they have an awesome meet, but yeah, just playing around with how much intensity to drop, if any, um, or how to, um, reduce the accessories. I am a big fan of accessories. Um, so sometimes they might flat load and I'll just have them do the same each week, because if you know, if you're doing the same sets and reps scheme and same weight, it's just going to get easier over time anyway. So you don't necessarily have to reduce volume too mm-hmm. much because they're just going to adapt to it anyways, if it just is the same. Um, or, you know, sometimes we do take it and minimize it a little bit. If, you know, I can tell that they're a little bit more winded or they're not recovering as quickly. It's like, all right, well, the, before I drop intensity anywhere, let's try and see what happens if we just lose some of this volume and accessories. So <clears throat> you just got to play around with it. I love that you talked about accessories right there. Like I was thinking about that the other day when I was thinking about like programming out for, for my next meet and stuff like that. And it's like, I didn't really pull any accessories out until like three weeks. I started to pull maybe one or two. I'm kind of the yeah. same way with you. Like those are most of mine are just single joint exercises anyways. Right. They're not going to be anything crazy. I mean, that's where it kind of plays around with the, I love that you kind of talk about that though. I think accessory, how big of accessories, you know, are you working with the athlete, like typical session, something like that? I don't know. Um, so the typical accessories, I would say I have like my order of operations with my athletes, you know, I have them do their primary lifts first. And then I'm a big fan of like either a pusher or a pool or an overhead press of some sort. Um, and then a bilateral exercise of some sort too. And then maybe, um, an isolation movement and a core exercise that's more like anti-extension, anti-rotation related. Um, so that's typically what it looks like, especially during a taper when I want them to maybe touch on certain things without like excessively fatiguing them. Um, but you know, accessories are another way that you can peak certain muscles. Like for instance, if your client is very like strong in their triceps and their bench press, then Mm -hmm. keeping those triceps, you know, and peaking them going into a meet instead of fatiguing the F out of their weaker muscle groups, that's might be a really good idea. So, I mean, there's just different ways that you can go about it. And, um, so that's how I'll, you know, choose their accessories based on what we're trying to peak, what we want to maintain fitness wise. Um, you know, if you look at competition day, it's really tiring. Like it's a really long day. And even though you're just doing nine singles, essentially, like you're doing your warmups, you have all the stress of the different people. And again, the extremely long day, unless it's like the meet where you finish at noon, that's oh. never happened for me. Um, but if you think about it, like in that something that you want to have a pretty high fitness capacity for, yeah. like you don't want to be exhausted by the time you get to deadlifts. Um, so I think that that's another consideration whenever we talk about reducing, the accessories, like your accessories can keep that fitness capacity up. So you don't want to take them away too quickly because, you know, then you detrain in that aspect. We don't want to detrain in our ability to execute high intensities, but we don't want to detrain either in our ability to, you know, keep up with the stress and the nature of a competition. So there's just so much to take into consideration and you just play around with it. Like I've said, um, until, you know, you figure out each person, <laughs> which yeah. takes a while, but it's, it's a fun little piece, puzzle piece to put together. You said something that was kind of interesting there is you talked about, you might do a single leg or a single arm, something like that, Oh yeah. but also core. I think that is like a huge hidden thing that I, I never see in a lot of people I talk to's program is core. And me personally, like I'm huge on, like you just said, like the anti-extension, like the Paul presses for days and stuff like dead bugs and everything like oh, yeah. for low back health, number one, too. But right. can you talk about the importance on like just those small accessories that really, you know, I will. Part. Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, how I said, you know, three days out, we pretty much end all training and they have that amount of time. Some athletes I might get under the bar 
a day or two before, but it's like barely anything on it. It's more to just go through the motions, Right. but that last week, so meet week and they're doing really lower intensities for the most part, not everybody, because some people, you know, can handle a little bit more. Um, but I, they, that's that meet week. I do typically take out all accessories Mm -hmm. except core work. So I will keep the anti-extension, anti-rotation in there and more so frame it towards like how I want them to brace. So it's like they're pulling, they're pushing, they're squatting, but they're also still training their brain on how to brace appropriately for underneath their loads. So it's like, yeah, they're doing their dead bugs. They're doing their power presses, but I'm telling them, you know, breathe in through your nose. I want you to fill you know, your lower abdomen 360 and, you know, breathing out in certain aspects, um, and through your mouth. But like, I've just, you know, training them one, it's going to be a calming exercise too, if they do it on their meet day, but it's just like constantly feeding their brain on how to do this because bracing so freaking important in the sport and doing it correctly is, you know, I, I never really realized how many people don't brace correctly and yeah. it's, it's such a skill. And so what do you need to improve skills practice? So even with, you know, these movements, it's like, if you're using those to learn how to brace correctly, focusing on the diaphragmic breathing, like that's going to play a huge role. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of these things. And I am, I love being creative too, with certain core movements. I'm all about anti-extension and anti-rotation whenever you are focusing on your breathing patterns, but how you can go about that. There's so many ways you can do it. I've learned just this year, um, more on core training because, you know, I had my baby in February And coming back into the sport since then, my biggest hurdle has been my core. It was stretched out. (laughs) So being able to build not just like strength, but just my core's ability to be able to handle more load on my back or in my hands, you know, pulling, like that's been the biggest thing. And it was so interesting. I started working with my friend, Sean, who is a physical therapist that takes more of the approach of strength training for physical therapy. Super cool. Um, But, you know, he showed me some really awesome ways to not just work my core, but just to get it to, you know, we don't, as power lifters, having abs is cool, but that's not the main goal. Like I just need my core to function under load and to know what to do and to be able to handle it. And so he, you know, showed me a bunch of different ways that I hadn't done before. And even though that was for me postpartum, I'm like, oh my God, those are brilliant for my athletes. Like people who need to learn how to brace correctly. People who are, you know, falling underneath the bar, like collapsing, you know, their trunk, you know, that's typically what's going on. Like they just don't know how to brace correctly and to stabilize their spine. So having these different ways to go about that is super fun and cool to just be creative and play around and experiment with. It's so important. Like I remember my first meet, I like bracing was like so hard for me. And then like, you kind of had like, somebody told me, they were like, man, like you hardly brace at all. I'm like, well, I breathe I'm like, I breathe in. He's like, no, 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 no. It's way more than that. And he like showed me some stuff and I'm like, oh yeah. Like that like feels totally different. I've, you know, yes. I've heard those stories of like Dave Tate. He talks about like Louie was like, let me see how fat you're, how fat you can get pushed <laughs> into the belt. And he's like six or whatever it was felt like, you know, 135. And that's the same thing that happened with me and every people person I've worked with too, as well as like, if we know how to brace, like, why would we not want to work on that? preparing for the meet you know what I mean right. not just do it on meet day like and you too like I love that you talked about the visualization side of it like visualizing right before the meet like right before your big pull and everything like that I think that's super important um mm-hmm. I want to get a little bit what has it kind of been like for you lifting you know after having your son it's been really fun honestly like I've I've been I I'm just kind of amazed by the human body how yeah. it can go through something like that And, you know, I'm still, 
you know, close enough to where it happened to remember what it was like, you know, like right after giving birth and just, it was a lot of fun, but, um, you know, getting back underneath the bar after I, I I honestly think I couldn't have played it any better. Like I was seeing a physical therapist who specialized in the pelvic floor beforehand. Mm -hmm. Not only that, she, was also, um, like whenever I was looking for a PT, like, obviously I wanted somebody who understood sports and, you know, she works with cheerleaders and gymnasts with their pelvic floor. And I'm like, okay, well, that's perfect. Yeah. That really <laughs> because, is. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked with her before I went back to her three weeks postpartum and we started, you know, building back everything down there. And, um, so after graduating with her, Sean had reached out to me and wanted to help me get back to the platform and kind of bridge the gap between pelvic PT and return to sport, Mm -hmm. you know, and so started working with him and it's just moved so fast. Like I I'm just kind of blown away by how good everything feels. And, you know, I don't have any, um, residual issues from, pregnancy or giving birth I can just go in and lift without really worrying about my pelvic floor and um and it's just been really cool to see what the human body is capable of if you take it at the right pace like don't jump into it too quickly trust your physician and your doc uh, your physical therapist because you know it's hard for someone who like honestly I'd, I've never gone since starting training I have never gone that long without being under a barbell wow. or lifting in some capacity and I didn't start using even like like going to the gym and using dumbbells until eight weeks postpartum and typically you know they say you can start training at six weeks and my physical therapist was like let's not do it yet. Let's do some of these other things to be for you to be able to handle what you're about to introduce your body to. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you tell me to do. It's so hard because you want, you're just, you want to go so bad, but you know, I did it. And, um, even then after that, I started, with just three lists a week. And even then, like my lists were like coming back so fast, like, especially once I started working with Sean on my core, because it was funny when I went from pelvic PT into the gym, like I would get under the bar and it's like, I know what to do. I know my technique. (laughs) I know how to like maintain my center of gravity, but I like my body would not do it. Like anytime (sighs) I'd come out of the hole of the squat, I was just like, boom, shoot forward, pull that bar off the floor, boom, shoot forward. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> it's so annoying. So then whenever Sean starts introducing these warmups for me, he's like, I want you to get under as much weight as you can handle. And then I just want you to march underneath it. So I would just hold. And it was so pitiful at first. Like I literally would just be shaking under like 185, but I would get there and I would just hold myself up and march. And it was just amazing how quickly I was able to get back to be able to continue or keep my technique and maintain my center of gravity without shifting onto my toes and like my core just collapsing under anything. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, I think, you know, that kind of made it feel okay. Like, cause you know, I, I'm such a, um, forever student I just love to learn and I'm just like even though this is you know me returning back to my sport and this is a long process like this is such cool information to learn and since I'm and since I love coaching I'm just sitting here taking all of this in and I'm like man this would work for this athlete and like you know you you just it's it's cool if you let it be um, if you don't really get too down on the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm still lifting, you know, sub maximal weights and they feel like maximal weights, but, <laughs> you know, it's okay. I'm getting up there. I still haven't put a belt back on, um, my pelvic PT. She's like, I don't want you to use a belt until you start prepping for your meet, you know? And I'm like, I think that's a good goal. And so in my head, I'm like, if I can lift my previous meet best without a belt, I know I'm ready to compete. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And we're getting there. So it's, it's a lot of fun. 
that's such an amazing process. And I can't wait to see when you get back on the platform. That's going to be absolutely awesome. But what I, again, like you said in there, that was awesome. It's like, you're forever learning. I think as coaches, like you have to always be learning and outsourcing too, as well. Like you went to find experts to be able to help you return to play. Like you were the athlete per se, like this is going to help you become a better coach because you can kind of experience what your athletes are, are experiencing on the, you know, from you coaching them and everything. I think that's the best thing you can do as a coach, honestly, is learn from other coaches. And I think that's what's so cool about your podcast is because we have that ability right at our fingertips to learn from these other really smart people. And yeah, working one-on-one with individuals who have expertise in something that I don't like that, that improves my knowledge so much, you know, other than just reading and stuff like that like obviously that's important too but getting that you know one-on-one experience with people Mm. who are smarter than you or have a different niche than you like that can do so much for you as both an athlete and as a coach well I think too as well they might be able to explain something in a different way that you maybe didn't understand it that way beforehand and you can easily get that information out to your athlete and stuff like that I want to ask you that question. You, you talked about niche and we talked about this before the podcast, but, you know, starting out as a coach, you know, I think a lot of people, what do you kind of see with remote training with other coaches? Like, do they need to create a niche in the beginning? What would you kind of give them advice on? I mean, I think in the beginning, you just need to get experience and learn yes. what you can um, have a really good understanding of just the fundamental concepts and principles of training and um, progressive overload, exercise physiology, those things. Um, and so I wouldn't say you necessarily need a niche right off the bat because you don't know what your niche is yet. Like that's just your time frame of learn what you can, work with who you can, have your guinea pigs. I always tell anybody who asks me what to do when they're first starting out as a coach, I'm like, get yourself a guinea pig. Make sure they know you're there, your guinea pig and just try different things out on them. Like when I first started powerlifting, uh, I had another client who was kind of interested in powerlifting too. And I'm like, we're about to play around with some things. And we played with daily undulated periodization and conjugate method. And we just <sighs> did different things, you know, and, um, and it just helped me grow as a, a new coach because it's like, if you don't do it, how are you going to know that much about it? And how are you going to know what works or really what even to program, you know, it's like you can, I, I've seen, I mean, I've been in the personal training uh, field for a a long freaking time. I started personal training in 2010 and um, it, yeah. And it wasn't until January of this year that whenever I was just a few weeks out from having Cohen that I stopped personal training and I didn't go back. I started just remote coaching or I didn't start remote coaching. Then I started remote coaching in 2015, but that was when I dropped personal training and solely focused on remote coaching. Mm -hmm. So I've been in personal training for a long freaking time and I've seen some things. (laughs) And, you know, if you, if you program something for your clients that you don't know how hard it is yet, then it's going to become an issue. Um, because you don't really, you, you can't really physically or mentally understand, you know, what you are giving a person to do. Um, and then when you give them something that they physically cannot do, (laughs) what that's just going to discourage them, like no other leaves them defeated. And so I think it's so important to, yeah, you have to get experience and you have to play around with things on yourself and on other people that know that you're new to something so that you can just give yourself the opportunity to learn. Um, and I think that's just the most important thing. And it's not really so much important to find your niche right off the bat as it is to just figure things out. And then as you do so, like me, like I started out in personal training, general population for many years And, you know, as I became an athlete, I realized how much I prefer working with people that are a little bit more like me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when my niche started to change. And when I felt comfortable swapping over to strictly that, and um, that's when my coaching business really took off. 
I could not agree with you more and just like being able to find what exactly your niche is going to be. I think that's absolutely amazing advice. And I believe, are you still doing the, the uh, mentorship thing? Can people still reach out to you for that and everything? I want to make sure I yeah. plug that for you. Yeah, absolutely. So my friend and I, um, Aaron Taylor, we are putting on a five-week mentorship course this December through January. It's five weeks, but 15 courses, classes. So it's three a week. Um, and we will be going over, I will be teaching on programming, biomechanics, um, periodization, and analyzing analysis, everything that you can imagine being like needing to know as a remote coach. And she will be going over everything business related. So putting together your business, figuring out your niche, if that's something you're ready for learning how to, you know, use social media to build your brand. Um, so we will be going over all of that this December and through this month, you can get 25% off. So if you just email me, Alyssa at ladybeef.com, I can get you all set up with that. Awesome. With all the details. Yes. I want to make sure people definitely look into that. If that's something you're interested in, because Alyssa is amazing. Like I said, um, we're going to go ahead and get you out of here. We'll get you out on our last couple of questions here. First one is if people want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? How can they follow you on social media? So real simple. My Instagram is just my name, Alyssa Parton. Um, you can also follow our team page if you want to keep up with how our athletes are doing. Um, and that is just lady beef, L-A-D-Y-B-E-E-F dot athletes. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me personally, my email is the best way to get a hold of me. And it's just my name again, Alyssa at ladybeef.com. Absolutely. I think paramount to go follower. Um, I think you're an amazing follower. We talked before the podcast again, like there's stuff that I learned tremendously from her Instagram and then just what she puts out and everything. So thank you for all that. Make sure you go follow her. Um, last question. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my family. I'm so excited to have, you know, we just moved uh, because yeah. I'm going to school, but my husband is still working where we're from. So we're like in the middle so that yep. we can both make our commutes. And I'm just thankful that, you know, my husband has been so supportive in me chasing this dream of becoming a um, professor and getting my doctorate and that my little sister moved with us. Like she picked up and moved to Coleman, Alabama <laughs> with us from Florida to take care of our little boy while I'm in school. So I literally like I could cry just thinking about like the sacrifices they've made for me. Um, so yeah, I'm very thankful for my family. They're the best. That is amazing to hear. Um, that is awesome. So Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week. I learned a ton. I can't wait to uh, listen back to it and uh, learn even more from you. So thank you so much. And uh, everybody, make sure you reach out to her. Thanks, Matt. No problem. Everybody stay strong.